Okay, I'm glad you're here. There's actually a, a, a lot going on. It's a, it's a really kind of like great um, kind of entry point to just discuss the world and, and uh, just how God runs it. Um, this is uh, Parsha's Beshalach, and it's really the Parsha of miracles. You've got the splitting of the Red Sea. You've got man, mana falling from, from heaven and all sorts, of, all sorts of amazing things. And all of it coincides with um, the Jews getting out of Egypt. So this is something that we've been building towards since the end of uh, uh, Sefer Breshis, the end of Genesis, and, and, and now finally it's, it's all happening. So this correlation actually is not um, coincidental, meaning to say Israel leaving Egypt and the revelation of open miracles. That, that's very much sort of like in tune, that sort of correlation is very much in tune with the destiny of the history of the world, meaning to say that when the redemption comes, you'll see open miracles in an amazing way. So Egypt represents servitude, exile. Israel represents redemption. When redemption frees itself from this level of servitude, then you see the liberation of nature itself, and you see the manifestation of open miracles. So, so the fact that the Jews are leaving Egypt, finally, in Parshas B'Shalach, and Parshas B'Shalach is really the headquarters of the greatest open miracles in the entire Torah, is actually not coincidental. That actually correlates with, with, with everything. So we're going to talk about nature. We're going to talk about miracles. It's, it's very striking that um, every year that we read uh, Parshas B'Shalach and the splitting of the Red Sea and all these open miracles, it's also um, Tu B'Shvat, which is um, the New Year of Trees. And of course, the New Year of Trees is, is sort of like, kind of like the, the, the opposite side of the spectrum in a big way. Meaning to say that um, trees seem to be the, the greatest representation of the natural order. Um, you take a seed and you plant it in the earth and you water it and the sun shines and you really care for it and everything like that. A tree seems to be the, the, and the fruit that comes from a tree seems to be the culmination of human effort. And yet, if you think about it, really the, the complete opposite is true. The, the idea of fruit coming from trees is absolutely, totally miraculous. Um, look at it this way. If you take something like an orange, which is like really juicy, right? And you think that this orange came out of a piece of wood a piece of dry wood. How, how is it possible that a juicy piece of fruit comes out of a piece of wood? Think of it in those terms. Like, for instance, I, I always think of this as an example. If you were to put your pencil down on a piece of paper and walk out of the room and come back in, and there were large pieces of juicy fruit, right, hanging off your pencil, you'd go, this is, an, this is a miracle, a miracle. But that's exactly what happens with a tree. The only thing is, is that God does it in slow motion. And God is, so to speak, tricking us all the time by doing the most miraculous things in slow motion so that we think that there's like total logic to it, right? One of the greatest things I ever saw is, it's, it's on the internet, it's a fast time elapse of a, um, the gestation of a baby inside of a mother's womb. And you see it, it's like, it's like real photographs. And you see basically in a minute or less, 
like there's nothing and then a human being pops out of nowhere inside of someone. Like when you see, when you see it like that, you go, it's a miracle. It's a, it's a, a person popped into the world, right? But because it goes in slow motion, it seems like, oh, well, this is like logical. This is us doing it. So in other words, so the correlation between Parshas Vishalach, which is open miracles, which is the splitting of the Red Sea, the mana falling from heaven, all of this happening, intersecting with Tubishvat, the new year of trees, which seems to be like, no, 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 I did this. I put in a tremendous amount of effort and I did this. You see that nature is also open miracles, right? And this is what God is trying to open our eyes to with this intersection, at least on one level. You know, the Ramban says that nature is, is basically, it's just, basically there are two categories of miracles. There are open miracles and there are hidden miracles. But you see, nature is just in the category of hidden miracles. But from this you see that everything is under the category of miracles. It's either a hidden miracle or it's an open miracle, but everything is a miracle. And the Ramban says it even more strongly. And this is like wild. Because a lot, this would be very surprising if you walked up to someone who doesn't know anything about Torah or Judaism. This following statement. The Ramban, one of our greatest, greatest, greatest commentators, says that if you don't say that every single thing that happens is a miracle, then you have no share in the Torah of Moshe. This is the Ramban. This is one of our greatest, greatest authorities. I'll say that again because it's like absolutely radical. If you don't say that every single thing that happens is a miracle, then you have no share in the Torah of Moshe. Meaning to say you have no idea. You think you understand anything about Judaism? You think you understand anything about what's going on in this world? You have no idea unless you understand that every single thing that happens is a miracle. Okay. So now let's go a little bit deeper in terms of trying to figure out how we can open up our eyes to this reality. And... You know, so much of this, if you really want to access and have a true appreciation of what's going on in the world, right? If you want to get into like the, the real rhythm of uncovering like the, the, the secrets of the world, you have to be able to appreciate music, right? Music is one of the keys to understanding all of these things. So... It's, it's no wonder, really, or put it another way, it's very appropriate that the celebration of the splitting of the sea is written as this great song that happens, right? So there's this correlation between open miracles, which would be expanded consciousness, and music. Because music is really the expansion of one's consciousness. And in fact, one of the prerequisites of receiving prophecy was actually to be in this place of simcha, of happiness. And one of the ways that the Nevi'im, the prophets, would get to this place would be to listen to music. So music expands your consciousness, which allows you to appreciate this miraculous level, layer, that Hashem is guiding the world with. Now, let me just pause to make the following point. We know that the Talmud says that the Torah existed 974 generations before the world was created. So what does that mean? 
It's a big thought. It doesn't mean that there was a Torah scroll floating in the sky before the world was created. The Torah is Hashem's will. And as Reb Shlomo put it one time, like the Torah is God's dreams and God's prayers for the world. And that when you keep the Torah, you're dreaming God's dreams and you're praying God's prayers. So the idea is that God had a will for the world before he created the world. Like if you're going to embark on a big project, you have a plan for it before you, before you embark on this project. Before God did this project of creating the world, he had an intention for it. That is the Torah as it existed before the world was created. God then took the intention itself, his will for the world, and he shaped it into the world. That's an amazing thing. In other words, his will for the world was the material out of which he made the world. That's why we say, or that's why some people say, you don't have tefillin to put on your arm God gave you an arm in order to put on tefillin. Because God's will for the world, the 613 mitzvot, he shaped them into a place where we could fulfill that world, that will. Okay, and that's this world. Okay. And how did God create the world? God created the world by singing the world into existence. Right? This gets us back to the idea of song. And the, 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 how essential it is to understand music and miracles and the fabric of reality. Because the entire world was sung into existence. Which means that the miraculous is embedded in creation itself. Now, since God created the world out of the Torah... We say that the Torah itself is a blueprint of the world. That's where this thought comes from, that the Torah is a blueprint of the world. Why? Because God created the world out of the Torah. So if we look at the first letter of the Torah, that's our introduction to the entire world, to the fabric of reality itself. Now we've talked about all the different levels, or many of the different levels, but I want to give you a new, a new idea of another level that the letter Bayes is telling us about creation. So just to review, what have we said up until now? We've said a lot of things about the letter Bayes, but just very fast, and then we'll get to a new, new idea. Bayes, everyone knows, is two. It's the second letter of the olive Bayes, right? So Bayes is two. So what is this duality that we see in this world? Well, we see, first of all, the illusion that God is not one. Right? That's one thing, because when, with our eyes, we see two-ness, right? We see multiplicity. Two stands for multiplicity. So already there's a level of concealment that's being hidden, hinted at with the letter base, right? We see, what else is two? Good and evil. There's good and evil in this world. What else do we see? Male and female. What else do we see? Heaven and earth. What else do we see? The written Torah and the oral Torah. What else do we see? Free choice, right? Because I can go this way or I can go that way. Two ways, right? Free choice. But now listen to this. This is a new idea. There are two hanhagos, two ways in which God guides the world 
One is through the path of nature, and the other is through the path of miracles. So this is a new base, and that's why it's very appropriate that this, this portion, which is Beshalach, also starts with the letter base, because here we have two things mixed together in the most interesting way. It's the Torah, the Parsha again of open miracles, that's one way, and yet how does the Parsha begin? God is taking us out of Egypt and he says, look, I'm going to take you this roundabout way so that you don't run into the police team and then they're going to war on you and then you're going to run back to Egypt. So how do we experience that in our own life? That's sort of like one of the headquarters of frustration on a human level, right? How many of us want what we want? We want it right now, right? And then God takes us on this roundabout way. And it's sort of like, ay vey, you know? Is, you know you're, you're, you're questioning every aspect of it. It's so frustrating. Like, what could be less miraculous than that? Confronting frustration. And yet, we find out here that God is actually saving us and guiding us and protecting us, even though we're experiencing it as frustration. So that's like one way. It's like the ultra-human way that God is being very sensitive to our sort of like what we can um, withstand and everything like that because he wants to keep us away from this war that would have happened otherwise. So that seems to be very frustrating. Also, I heard from Reb Shlomo something very like intense from one of the Rebbes, I, I don't remember which one, that this Parsha begins with the word Vayahi. Now we know from the Gemara that when you have the word Vayahi, that portends something negative. When you have Vahaya, that means something very positive is happening. So how could it be? Parshas Bishalak, we're finally getting out of Egypt. How could it start with the word Vayahi? Right? Doesn't make sense. So I'll read you the Pasuk. It says like this in English. This is the first Pasuk of Bishalak. It happened. That's Vayahi. When, bless him, when Paro sent out the people, Right? And then it goes on. That God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Plishtim, because it was near, for God said, perhaps the people will reconsider when they see a war, and they will return to Egypt. Okay, that's what we've been talking about. But listen to the first part of this. Why, why Vayahi and not Vahaya? Why something negative? It happened when Paro sent out the people. Right? Why Vayahi? Because you know what the people thought? Ah, it's Paro who's sending us out, not God who's taking us out. Right? So even, even at that moment, there was still like a little space where we still needed more Amuna. And of course, when does that Amuna, that huge Amuna moment, this, this huge faith moment come for the Jewish people? With the splitting of the sea. Because you've got this amazing verse in the Torah that it says, after it happened, then the Jewish people believed in God and in Moshe and in Moshe. So the Rashbam says something really interesting. I just learned this, something very cool. He adds just a few words. He says, he says and what did they believe, right? You can't say that they believed um, in God over something that already happened. Amuna, Amuna, faith, is talking about the future. He adds, and that already happened. So where's the Amuna? So what does the Rashbams add? That what does it mean that they believed in God and in Moshe? That they would be provided for in the desert. You see? Think about it. You've got approximately two and a half million people 
traveling into the desert with no food in the desert. I mean, it was like, that's death, right? It's going to happen. But at this moment, what was this belief? What was this amuna, which actually points to the future? That God who's provided for us is going to continue to provide for us. And we believe this, right? Even though we're going into the desert, we believe that God is going to provide for us. That's the Rashbam. Okay. So now let's get more into this idea of, of music. You know, I, I can't not tell you the one of my all-time favorite Torahs. We said, so God sang the world into creation and that the, the fabric of reality itself is weaved in with this song, which is expanded consciousness, which is one of the two ways that God conducts the world, right? The Beis of Reshit, which is the miraculous, right? The path of the miraculous. So if you take the word Breshis, the Tikkune Zohar says that you can rearrange the letters and it spells Shiras Olive Beis, the song of the Olive Beis. Because another one of our mystical traditions is that God took the energies of the Olive Beis of the Hebrew letters and formed the world out of them. So Breshis creation, right? is the word Shiras Olive Beis, the song of the Olive Beis, hinting at that God sang the world into creation. Now I heard Rabbi Tzvi Freeman say something so special this Shabbos. He's a um, musician and he's studied, uh, formally studied classical uh, guitar and everything like this. And he said, look, imagine a symphony. People are singing, right? It's, it's very beautiful. Now, now imagine like a, a symphony with millions and billions and trillions of different parts singing. He says, that's this world. Everything is singing. Everything is part of this song. Now listen to this part. He says that he studied a piece of music, right, while he was formally training, and then he learned that same piece of music with the composer himself. And he saw that the composer put everything of himself into the song that he had written. And then he listened to the same piece of music again, and it was a completely different piece of music. Because he heard the composer in the music. Right? That's, that's, that's mind-blowing, because the, 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 the parallel is, is clear. We're talking about this world when you see that every single aspect of creation is part of God's song, is part of God's symphony. And then you get to know the creator himself, right? And how is that through, 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 through Torah study, through davening, through doing acts of kindness, through loving each other, right? This allows you to know the creator himself. Then you experience life again and you see the composer within the composition. You see God's song within all the musical notes. And then it follows to say the, the, this next thought, that the better that you know the composer, the more you hear the music in absolutely everything. Right? Okay. So... So we're leaving Egypt. And there's this Pasuk, this verse in the Torah. It's, uh, if you want to see it, it's, it's uh, chapter 12, verse 51. 
And this verse caught my eye because of its absolutely its absolute definitiveness. It's a it's a straight declarative statement. Okay, now remember, we've been building toward leaving Egypt for many parshas since the end of Brachis. And all of a sudden we get this verse, alright, which is just cut and dry. It happened on that very day, and in Hebrew it's Be'etzim Hayom Azet, which is a very emphatic statement. Be'etzim means the essence, Hayom Azet, the essence of this very day, right? So it's like really strong. It happened on that very day that Hashem took the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt in their legions. In other words, done. The Jews left. Done. And in order to show you the importance that, um, that Hashem is putting on this Pasuk, you know, we, we always talk about how the Torah is black fire on white fire. There's a chunk of white fire before this verse and a chunk of white fire after this verse. So this verse is sort of like cordoned off. So it's kind of like really highlighted right there. So I thought to myself, wow, we've been leading up to this verse for like a long time. Like, you know, for 200 years, 210 years, 400 years, 430 years, whatever, wherever you start counting from, it's been a long time that we've been waiting for this verse, you know, that's within the Torah, you know. So I thought this verse must have like a lot of wonders encoded in it. It has to be, right? So what do I know? I don't know anything, but I figured let me just take the most basic sort of like measuring of it, you know. So I counted it and it's 13 words and it's 50 letters. Now that was very striking to me because I learned in the name of the Zohar that it says that God mentions us being taken out of Egypt 50 times in the Torah. And here it is, 50 letters. In other words, you know, we're always talking about microcosms, like DNA, how like a larger thing is, is contained in a very small place. So here's like a little sampling of like the DNA, a microcosm of leaving Egypt, right? And what's the, what's the idea of, of 50 on another level? Not only are there 50 mentions and they're all grouped in this one verse, which is sort of like the umbrella verse of the entire experience, but if you remember, we've been making the point very emphatically God didn't just take us out of Egypt and then, oh, what am I going to do with them? I'll give them the Torah. Right? That wasn't it. God's mission for us to leave Egypt started at the burning bush, which the Torah itself tells us was at Mount Sinai. And at the burning bush, at Mount Sinai, God says to Moshe, take the Jews out of Egypt and bring them back here. So we see the entire leaving of Egypt was all for the purpose of giving them the Torah at Mount Sinai. So when did we get the Torah at Mount Sinai after we left Egypt? 50 days later. <laughs> right? And there's 50 letters in this verse. Right? So the whole, and these are, I mean, this is just the, the most casual look at the Pasuk. I'm sure there's way, 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 way more in it. And 13 words, again, just on the most simplest level. The whole aspect of nature in Torah is the number 12. Right? We've got 12 months to the year and everything like this. But 13 is the idea of Lamala Minateva, that which is beyond nature, that which is beyond the mirac- that which is the miraculous. And so how did God take us out of Egypt? This Pasuk is telling us that God took us out of Egypt. How did he do it? 
by transcending nature, by going above nature and showing that there is no two separate powers in the world, that there's nature and there's God, and God is stronger than nature. God is not stronger than nature. There's only one power. God wills nature. God saturates nature, right? The composer saturates the composition, and it can open up at any point, depending on where we're holding, right? God looks to us. So these openings can happen at any moment because there are two pathways. That's the base of Rashi's, right? The miraculous guidance of the world or the normal regular guidance of the world. But it's all, it's all there. Okay. So now let's go deeper because we have to make it practical, right? So the question is, the question is, what's stopping us from leaving Egypt? So probably there are many answers to this. So I want to, I want to, I want to give two, I want to give two approaches. Okay. For now. And one thing that I think is, uh, is very striking. And it's a big key to how God runs the world. And hopefully this will help us with um, sort out um, the different challenges that we face in our lives spiritually, again, in a practical way. If you look at the account of us leaving Egypt, you'll find something very, very, very striking, which is that God destroyed all the idols of Egypt except for one. One of them was called Baal And he left this idol intact. And this is, this, this is, you'll see how this connects to all of us in a moment. At one point, God says to uh, Moshe, turn the people around and make them, that we had already left Egypt, this is before the splitting of the Red Sea, turn them around and make them head back toward Egypt. So now we're heading back toward Egypt. And now the sign gets sent to Paro. They're lost in the desert. They don't know where they're going. And that sort of getting lost in the desert and heading back toward Egypt was right around the location of the idol of Baal And the Egyptians thought, aha, God is very powerful. But he's not so, Baal is more powerful. And you see the Jews got as far as Baal but now Baal is making them turn around and head back toward Egypt. Okay, now this correlates. So, but what was this? This was just like a, this was just Hashem just playing with the Egyptians, right? To get the Egyptians to come out with all their chariots so that he could drown them in the Red Sea and make even more miracles, right? Now, the Chassam Sofer brings a question, which is, um, you know, like a really good question, which is, what kind of maniac at this point, like we're talking about the, the Egyptian soldiers, what kind of maniac would run into the split Red Sea, right? Like, like for sure. Like, there's one of the greatest miracles ever, and you're running in to fight the people that the sea was just split for? So the Chassam Sofer says, you know what it was? They, in their ideology, Baal Safon was the god of the water. And, and, and they thought, ah, on this battleground we can defeat them because this is Baal who wasn't destroyed. This is his jurisdiction. So now we'll be able to have a big victory. And of course, 
That wasn't the case because God runs the entire world and no idol has any power whatsoever. Certainly not Baal or anything like this. And of course they meet their end. They meet their doom. Okay, so I keep on telling you that what I'm telling you is very practical to our lives. So how so? What's the point? The point is, is that God will always allow a Baal thought to enter into your head. <laughs> Meaning to say... God will always make it possible for you to say, oh, you know what? It's not God. It's this other circumstance. God will always keep another possibility alive in your mind that just like the Egyptians could say, oh, there's not really a God because the Baal wasn't destroyed. There will always be for you, for me, for all of us, another explanation to account for everything. Always. Always. That's the concept of God allowing Baal to remain. And you have to understand this in your life. Because when you say, was that God or am I just that great looking? You know what I mean? <laughs> you know? Was that God or, you know, I'm just like, you know, I'm smart. Let's, let's just say it. You know, I mean, you know, at every opportunity, we'll have the ability to point to ourselves as the master of the situation or point to some other um, auxiliary related circumstance as the true explanation of a phenomena that's happening for us. This is the concept of God keeping Baal intact, right? Everyone get it? Does everyone get this? And if you know this, if you know that this is one of the ways that God runs the world, then you can say, oh, the next time you have that thought, or is it just this? Or if, or if you are like incredibly enthusiastic about some experience, right? And then someone that's like, you know, like Reb Shlomo would say, you know, is cutting your wings off, right? And then telling you, no, 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 it's just this. Just think, oh yeah, that's the Baltzaphon. That's, that's the Baltzaphon factor. Okay, I understand that it's there. I'm not resentful that it's there. God is just giving me the opportunity to exercise my free choice and to understand really it's Him. Okay? So, and now here's a subcategory of it, but this is also very real and very practical. I heard from Rabbi Green in the name of the Bali Musr that that. There is the test, and then there's the test after the test. This is, again, another way that God runs the world. A person gets a test, but then, even if you pass the test, there's the test after the test. So what's the test after the test? That's once you've passed the test, do you say, you know how I passed it? Because it was me. (laughs) In other words, first you've got to get through the test. Then you get the test after the test to say, you know what, it was still God. Because you'll have another moment to take credit for it after the fact. The Jews leave Egypt, right? But Baal is still there. <laughs> That's the test after the test. Okay. So now, we'll get even more practical. And... Uh, talk about another obstacle in our way of leaving Egypt. And 
and this is um, this is from uh, this week's broadcast of This American Life. If you had a chance to listen to it, it's the, the last segment on it. And it's dealing with the voices in our head, right? So all of us have voices in our head. I'm not talking about schizophrenia. I'm talking about just, just the voices that we hear. And for so many of us, for all of us, depending on different degrees, a lot of them are very negative and a lot of them are counterproductive and a lot of them are even uh, downright hostile, right? So how do you deal with the voices in your head? So I thought that this was a very, very interesting uh, real-life story and um, I want to share it with you. Um, I've forgotten the name of the person, I'm sorry, but you can look it up on the This American Life uh, broadcast. And uh, I think the name of the episode is If You Don't Have Anything Nice to Say. Um, so this person was suffering with like a, a extreme negative thinking. And he was a software designer. And he wanted to try to um, design a piece of software that would actually help him combat the negative voices in his head that was telling him that he was worthless all the time in different ways. And so what did he do? He said he designed this thing where he would be able to type in different keywords about his life, right? Like money, love, happiness, you know, whatever were the keywords, the areas that he was concerned about, that we're all concerned about. And he programmed the software to send him multiple emails a day. But the multiple emails would be letters or emails from his anxiety that was bashing him. <laughs> so in other words, it would be something like this, you know, dear, whatever his name is, you know, you realize that you're just a worthless piece of garbage, don't you? Signed, your anxiety. <laughs> right? And he would get these multiple times during the day. Now, when I first heard this, I was like, what, you know? And, and, the, and the interviewer had the same question. I'm sure you all have the same question. How is that helping? Right? Seems like that would make it worse, right? Now, all this is highly personal, but this was, this was him dealing with his own situation, okay? So they said, how, how is this helping you? And he said, he said it, it, it helped me a lot. He said, because what it did was it externalized this voice. Now, let's think about that for a moment. You see, for most of us, or I guess all of us, our thoughts are like, like this mosh pit, right? It's just thoughts and emotions just slamming themselves into each other in our, in our mind, right? And there's a lot of hit and run going on, where it's sort of like you hear a horrible negative comment, and then it just... The, the, that, that whoever perpetrated it, wherever, whatever the, the source of that, that comment in your, in your psyche just uh, disappears. Right? You can't grasp it. So in this way, it's sort of like it was all externalized and documented. And the multiple emails throughout the day, he said that he could look at his inbox and he could see all of these messages from his anxiety. So that sort of like paralleled these thoughts which reoccur during the day. He could see not only the voice externalized, but the time intervals, so to speak, 
right? Externalized as well, right? That, because periodically you get these horrible thoughts, and here they are. Periodically you get these emails. So you can actually see another representation of how this voice inside our heads works. And he said he'd even sometimes respond, right? He'd write back. No, that's not true. <laughs> right? But here's the, here's the really striking thing. He, he came to a conclusion that, you know what? This voice, this thing that's, that's writing me, this is, is wrong and is stupid and is just saying the same thing over and over again. And it helped him to discredit the legitimacy of this voice inside of his head. And I'll tell you something. He said that this is an app, and you can get this app. You know, if you Google around, you can do it. You'll type in your own keywords, um, 2x or I'm not enough y, whatever it is. And you can also get horrible emails if you want. <laughs> so, again, this is a highly personal thing, whether this would be effective for you. By the way, my wife just showed me something, which is you can also get just total affirmations also. You know, if you want that, you just write in the areas that you want, and then throughout the day, you'll just get a text or an email that says, you know, you're, in, you're inspiring, or you're good, or you're whatever it is. And you can get that if that is more, you know, would be more productive for you. That's also available. But, th but that's really important because we have to root for ourselves and we have to uproot this, this, um, that energy because it's holding us back. It's holding us back in a big way. You know, another thing that I'm, I'm trying to do this, haven't quite um, fully done it yet, but I've done it a few times and it's been enormously helpful. It sounds so simple, but um, it's, it's, it's potentially huge, which is... Keep a checklist. You know, if you have, because I know for me, there are things that fly in and out of my head all the time of things to do. And then some of them, I remember, probably most of them I don't. And sometimes it's just as easy as a quick email or it's easy as a quick phone call. And then like, and that could be the difference between some event happening or some like very cool thing happening or not happening at all. And if you like just write a little checklist then you can check these things off and at least you don't have to wait for this miraculous like memory to come into your head and then possibly to disappear from your head just as fast, you know? So that's another thing that where we can be way more productive and again, this is all under the category of leaving Egypt. Um, I want to go further into one more point. Um, which is, we talked about the divine nature of the Torah and how, um, how the Torah is the blueprint of, of, of all of reality and how we have certain instances of, of things that are real microcosms, meaning to say something very large is contained into something very small. So Pesach, which is the holiday that we talk about leaving Egypt, Pesach, the Zohar says, is the model for all future redemptions. Okay? So... So just like God took us out of Egypt, God is going to take us out of this present iteration of reality, basically. Like there's another era. As I always like to say, Torah believes beyond deeply in evolution. But Darwin aside for a moment, this idea is that the world itself and human beings themselves are evolving toward a greater state. 
And, and this is like an incredibly optimistic but very real thing. If you just look at what human beings have been capable of doing um, in, the, in the past versus what we're doing right now and the speed within which things are happening and the changes in the world itself, it's, it's, it's amazing. You know, it, it, you, you feel the energy of this. You, you feel the truth of this. So all of this is contained within the holiday of Pesach itself. And I just want to point to one thing. It's a simple thought, but it, it just kind of struck me as, as a new thought, you know, which is it says in the Torah that the holiday, God is telling us how to observe Pesach, Passover, and it says that the, it's seven days, right? In, outside of Israel, we, we make it eight days, but in Israel, it's seven days. The classic observance is seven days. So it says that you'll observe it for seven days, and it says the first day is going to be a holiday, and the last day is a holiday, right? So again, we know that Pesach is the model for all future redemptions. So the first day of Pesach is us leaving Egypt, right? And what's the last day of Pesach, which is a holiday? It hasn't happened yet. That's Mashiach. That's Mashiach. It's right there. It's right, it's right there. It's been designated. It's waiting. It's going to happen. All right, let me conclude with on that thought. It says, Az Yashir. Az Yashir. It's talking about a song that the Jews sang after the sea split, and yet it's put, as all the commentators point out, in the future tense. Az Yashir means, and then they will sing. But it's talking about a song that they sang. So what does it mean? And then they will sing. So they talk about how this is really talking about the resurrection of the dead. I mean, this is really talking about, wow, this is like, this is in the future. This is what we're talking about. This is where it's going to get to. Az Yashir, right? Where music just kind of like totally takes off. And again, what did we say? That one of the preconditions of prophecy was expanded consciousness. And the prophets got that place through music. And that God created the world, right? Shiras olive bays, brashis. God created the world through this fabric. He sang the world into existence, which means the miraculous is weaved through the fabric of creation. And there are two ways, the bays of brashis, the bays of Bishalach, through which God conducts the world, two hanhagas, the natural order and the miraculous order. And they're all completely intertwined and embedded in the world itself. But the symphony of the world Az Yashir is going to climax, right? This is the messianic era. This is the opening that we're talking about. This is the next evolution of consciousness and the world itself. It's going to reach this incredible, wow. I'm always reminded, I remember learning that Wagner, right? The, the, uh, the, the, the opera composer, you know, um, uh, was... He would, he would write these operas that were, that were hours and hours long, something like five hours long, right? And one of the things that he did was he wouldn't resolve the main melody, right? And it would cause this, like, anxiety among the people who were listening for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> and then at the end, when his story came into full bloom, he would resolve the melody finally, and people would be, like, weeping, you know, they'd be, ah, like this release that would happen, right? 
And that's the symphony of the world that's taking place right now. People are like, well, you know, the injustice, the war, the hunger, the starvation, the hatred, and everything like that. There's all these aspects in the music of creation that's unresolved. And then we're going to see the resolution of all these things and this amazing opening. And that's going to be Mashiach. Hashem should send it soon. Amen. Here are some questions and answers. The song, the song of the sea. Yeah. Um, can you say a few more words about that? I'm not. I'm just not clear. I'm not. I'm not, not clear about it. I have some images in my head, and I have some some thoughts about it. But I'm not sure about what really with the Jews that they. You know, what, what happened? What was the song of the sea? So the song of the sea was a was a celebration after the sea split. They, they, they sang this great um, thank you to God after, after it happened. And it says in the Gomorrah that there are certain generations where the leader is worthy of Mashiach coming, but the people aren't. And other generations where the people are worthy of, of Mashiach coming, but the leader isn't. Right? And one example that they give is that after the miraculous victory of Sincherev, when the Jewish people were almost absolutely eradicated, like the, t- the, the 10 of the 12 tribes have already been defeated and exiled, and now Sennacherib's army was, was like ready to finish off the Jews in Yerushalayim. And at midnight, God brought this plague and wiped out the entire army. It was like this total tremendous miracle, right? And it says that Hezekiah the king didn't sing. And had he sung, then Mashiach would have come. And that was, a, that was a, an example of where the, the generation was worthy of Mashiach, but the leader wasn't ultimately, because he didn't make this song. Right? So, so, so singing, again, is like, like, you know how you are like, when you're like, in like, normal conversational <coughs> mode. And then, let's say, you know how you are, say, Friday night at the Happy Minion, right? When you're like singing, it's a whole other level of existence. But literally, I'm not trying to be, you know, flowery right now. You are in a completely transformed place. So those two energy levels, it's like a, there's a quantum leap that happens with song, right? And that, that quantum leap parallels what the new version of quote-unquote nature is going to be. That's going to take a quantum leap also. And so very appropriately, the sages, you know, link that leap through song. So, so that's the song that the, the, the Az Yashir, the song of the sea, is the praise that the Jews sang to God after this miracle happened. And it's very appropriate to do that. Interestingly, it says then the women sang. But it doesn't just say that the women sang. It said that they played their drums and sang. So everyone asks the question, where did they get drums from? <laughs> right? And, and, and the answer is, which is one of the great praises of Jewish women, is that they knew that God was going to save us. They had no question, so they already brought musical instruments because they wanted to be there to party, basically, in an appropriate way with like great music when the redemption came. And I know like in Chabad circles here, they have parties where, where they all like customize their own tambourines and drums and things like that, you know, which is like, which is like a very, very beautiful thing. And by the way, one of the questions that's asked about women in the Torah is, you know, you see that they um, didn't uh, participate in the sin of the golden calf. 
And you see, because like the men were like, you know, ripping out their earrings and all sorts of stuff, but the women were like, yo, no, you know, they didn't want to do it. They didn't want to participate. They also didn't participate in the sin of the spies. So you have like the two great turning points in terms of like our destiny, you know, from getting from Egypt to Israel. The women didn't derail either one of those, right? So where did they get their power in terms of being able to stay... Uh, true to God. And, and I heard one answer was that it says that basically, you know, they had their musical instruments and they danced, that there's a level of simcha, of dance, of joy, that they were able to stay connected to. You see, in other words, joy can get you through a hard time. That's the, that's the answer. If you have a spiritual challenge and you're in a depressed place, good luck, my friend. You know, if you're in a place of spiritual challenge and you're besimcha, you're happy, you're in a place of joy, you have the armor, or at least you're way, way, way better prepared to withstand the challenge than you would be otherwise. And you see that women, you know, had this, this, this amazing ability, you know, they were tapped into joy in a way that, that men weren't apparently, you know, or that's one answer that's given anyway. What's okay. the, was, was the song, do they have the song, do we know the song? You know no, the song? the song came down in a prophetic way. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't read a, like from the thank you song book. Yeah. yeah. And do, we, do we have a clue yeah. to that song? Because it's a very powerful... Well, we have the song itself. Oh, you mean the, the, the music? Do we have yeah, the music? Yeah, Is that what you're asking? Something, no. Something, something no. Like Buddha. No, we don't have it. No. Not that I know of any. Yeah. Thank you very much. Okay, sure. Yeah.